Dear friends, I don't know if you ever heard of a man named Hans Seeley. Hans or Hans Seeley. He was the first man to make a, a real systematic scientific study of human stress. <clears throat> and this man, who's really the, the father of this, this study of, of stress, made a remarkable, dis, uh, he, he wrote in 1976, he published some of his research. He spent a lifetime studying human stress. And he found, he discovered, and he published that physical and emotional stress is reduced most effectively not by success or pleasure or even love. Stress is best reduced when we feel what? Grateful. Now, to the best of my knowledge, this man, Hans Seeley, was not a Christian man. He was just a, a secular researcher. And yet he, he came to a, a truth that really, my friends, every Thanksgiving day again, we need to rediscover. It's hard to overestimate the importance of gratitude in our life as a Christian. Now, some of you might be saying, Pastor, I think you said this last year. And I did. And I'll probably say it every year. It's too important to miss. Gratitude is, is such a critical thing in our life. You cannot be a happy person if you are not a grateful person. Think hard about that with me this morning, my friends. You cannot be a happy person if you do not have gratitude. Ungrateful people right, are by definition unhappy. They, they have to be. If you're not a grateful person, you are unhappy. Furthermore, it's very difficult to be a good person, to do good in this world, if you are not a grateful person. A, 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 an ungrateful person right, sees themselves as lacking something. Perhaps it's not your fault, but perhaps it is your fault, whatever it may be, but you see yourself as deficient in some way. You, you want this or you need this, right? And especially if, if you're a victim of some kind of behavior, right? It builds resentment and anger, even hatred. And so a lack of gratitude in our life is like a mother sin because it gives birth to children. And the children that it gives birth to are these things that make us not only unhappy, but make us, but cripple us from doing any good in the world. On the flip side, when we are grateful, when we have gratitude in our life, we're filled with warm feelings of love, right, and compassion for other people, and even a desire to give back, right? That's, that's a part of gratitude, that when we feel thankful, we have a desire to give in return. That's a normal feeling that grateful people have, that they have a desire to do something in return to whatever it may be that has given them whatever it is that they have. Gratitude, it's such a powerful engine in our life for good. And that's why I'm thankful, and I'm sure you're thankful, that every year again, this Thanksgiving Day comes around. Because I'm certain, my friends, 
that if we made this a point of self-examination in our life, we would find that so much of our resentment or even malice that we might have in our hearts or, or, or stress even is if we trace it back, we can trace it back to this lack of gratitude. I was always struck. Maybe some of you remember this story, but Corey Ten Boom, when she was in the, in the prison or in the prison house, the Nazi, what's the word I'm looking for, the camp, you know, when, they were in, when she was in that camp, right? And, uh, and, the, and, the, and the beds were full of lice. The room was full of lice. And Corey Ten Boom's friend was thankful for the lice. And Corey Ten Boom said, you must be crazy. How can you be thankful for lice? Well, uh, the next day, when the guards came by, they passed by the, uh, the, the, the rooms where Corey and her friend were studying the Bible. Why did they pass by? Because those rooms were full of lice. And so Corey's friend said, this is why I'm thankful for the lice. It keeps the prison guards out of our room, and we are free to study the Bible in here. I doubt anyone here has to stretch that far to find something for which to be thankful. So, gratitude makes us happy. Gratitude is a great engine for good in our life. By the way, this is why I caution you against politics, right? Because when we immerse ourselves in politics, we immerse ourselves in something that is calculated, that is intentionally designed to make you unhappy. Right? That is, that is the business of politicians, is to show you all the problems that you have so that they can then fix them. Now again, I know, I know that we have to be aware of politics. We have to, politics is the, it's like the, it's the dirty discipline, right? It's something that we have, to, we have to take part in it, right? But just beware, my friends, that the more we immerse ourselves in the political uh, goings-on of the day, the more we, we, we drag ourselves down into anger and resentment and to anxiety and gratitude, right? In one sense, a politician doesn't want you to be thankful. He doesn't have a job then. Just yesterday, I, I read about this deal that the Israelis made with Hamas for hostages, and it filled me with such anger and such disgust. And then I went back to my sermon writing, and I felt much happier I think you can do the same thing, right? Yes, of course, we have to know these things. We have to be aware of these things. But sometimes you've got to just turn it off. So gratitude. What does God say about gratitude? Well, we have the Ten Commandments. And the very last one, thou shalt not covet. You must always remember, my friends, that whenever there's a thou shalt not in the Ten Commandments, right, there's always the thou shalt, right? There's always the negative, but then there's always the flip side, which is the positive. So what would the flip side be of thou shalt not covet? Right? Coveting is, is wanting something, right, to the point that it makes us unhappy, it makes us uneasy, unsettled. So what would be the flip of that? Well, the positive side of that would be to be thankful for something, right? To be thankful for what you have. And so the obligation for Christians to be grateful is bound up in the Tenth Commandment. To be thankful and to be grateful for the many blessings that God has given us. And so we are thankful that every year again, Thanksgiving Day rolls around. And I, I challenge you, my friends, to, to think intentionally about Thanksgiving today. And to, and to, and to be intentional about choosing to be grateful 
and uh, where we have children and families, to do likewise for them. To make gratitude a part of the, of the very fabric of your life. So that we don't just celebrate a Thanksgiving day, but we be a people of gratitude, a people of thanksgiving. Matthew Henry, you remember the quote probably, said, Thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. Thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. Now, the 10th commandment. I'll also bring this to your attention, which I was, uh, I didn't know this until I read this. This is interesting, that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul mentions the subject of thanksgiving in his letters more often, line for line, than any other Hellenistic, that means Greek, author, pagan, or Christian. The Apostle Paul mentions the subject of thanksgiving in his letters more often than any other Hellenistic author, pagan, or Christian. You see, my friends, this is a deeply biblical thing. And if the Apostle Paul mentions it more than any other pagan author, then how much more in our lives should there be this habit, this routine of gratitude and thanksgiving? And we can learn that from the 10th commandment. We can learn it from the Apostle Paul. So, so much then for the introduction. I'll say it all over again next year. Psalm 65. Psalm 65. The text comes from verse 9. Now, children, are you going to visit anybody today? Or is somebody coming to visit you today? I suspect that probably most of us are going to have a visit from somebody. Well, today I want to bring from Psalm 65, when God comes to visit. That will be the subject then of the sermon. When God comes to visit, what does he do? What does he bring? What is the result? So when God comes to visit, in verse 9 of Psalm 65, what do we read there? You visit the earth. You visit the earth. And we could translate that even, you visit the land. Again, the earth kind of gives us the idea of the globe, right? But you want to think about dirt right now. That's, what, that's what's very much in mind in the psalm. You visit the land. You visit the soil. So God comes to visit. That's the first point. Now the second point is what does God bring? If you're going to someone else's house today, I suspect that you are bringing something. There's probably so many crockpots out there plugged in right now, aren't there? More than probably on any other day of the week, a year. Because you're bringing something. You went to the store and you have to bring something. And if if everybody's coming to your house, they're bringing something. Well, God brings something as well. He brings something. And what does God bring? In one word, my friends, God brings water. Water. Now, you may not be very impressed by that. Water. But my friends, again, if you try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who would have heard this psalm, and actually... Even if you put yourself in the shoes of people who live in Palestine today, water, that's gold. Water is so uh, scarce in that region that the water supply, whoever controls the water supply, controls the nation. 
fact, if I'm not, don't quote me on this, but if I'm not mistaken, that's one of the reasons why the Golan Heights in the land of Palestine is so highly prized because it's a water source. So for these people, and especially in an agricultural society, water is such a critical thing. God brings water when he comes to visit. Now you see that in verse 9, the second part of there where it talks about the stream of God is full of water. And the word stream there, again, don't think about like a, a creek. You want to think of like an irrigation ditch, like a, a channel or a canal. Again, the land of Palestine is very hilly. So they have to make use of ridges and terraces in their, in their agriculture to, to funnel the water to the plants. So now these irrigation ditches, the, the stream which comes from God, that's how you to understand of God there, the stream which God provides is full of water. So God brings a vast quantity of this water and of this rain. And you can read about it in verse 10. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. Again, you see the, the kind of farming probably that they would have done there, right? On hillsides and such. Not just a flat field as we're used to. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. So God brings water. Now, what does God do? So we talked about God's visit. What does God bring in the second place? And now in the third place, what does God do? Well, in light of the fact that God brings all this water, He brings all this rain, the, 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 what God does is He now prepares the grain. Notice at the, ver at the end of verse 9, you prepare their grain. For thus you prepare the earth. Now the word prepare there means very much to establish, uh, to steady. Uh, you know, sometimes when people plant trees, right, they'll put those stakes in with, a, with a, a cord to hold the tree in place, right? Especially first after it's been planted and the roots haven't really been established yet. Well now, in a, in a kind of similar way, God comes to those little sprouts of wheat and corn barley, whatever it may be that's growing. And, and for each plant, my friends, God takes his hand and he steadies it. He establishes it. And he, he might say, leads it out of the ground and coaxes it out of the ground and waters it and cares for it and brings each plant. Now, you and I can only focus on one plant at a time. But in the doctrine of God's providence, my friends, we confess that the almighty, all-knowing, all-present God, he takes each plant, each grain plant, and he tenderly, carefully gardens it, like, like a farmer gardens his, 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 his fields. But a farmer can only do a field, right? But God takes each plant, right? That's what we see in verse 9. You prepare their grain. In other words, you establish it. You care for it. For each grain, for thus you prepare the earth. Now, there's the reason why God can, can so carefully cause these plants to grow and, and you might say lead them out of the ground and up to maturity is because he's already prepared the ground. And it's the same word there. Just as God carefully tends the grain, so God carefully tends to or establishes, he prepares the earth 
And of course, how does he do that? With the water that he brings. But my friends, it's such a magnificent poem that we're given here in the psalm. And, and the imagery here is so rich. Because here, God is the farmer. And he's caring for each plant, for each, grain, each sprout, no matter how small it may be. God is there. And he's bringing everything together, the soil, the water. And he's leading that plant out of the ground. It's a, such a beautiful picture. This is what God does. You might say he gives each sprout a drink of the water that he brings. And just enough. Now, what's the result? Well, look at the, I mean, there's so many pictures here and words given us for the result. Already in verse 9, you visit the earth and you cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. At the end of verse 10, we have you bless its growth. You've crowned the year with your bounty. Your paths drip with fatness. What does that mean? Well, you know that to get to the field, there would be these paths, right? And these paths would be very packed down. You wouldn't expect anything to grow there, right? And, and they, didn't, they didn't want anything to grow there. But this, this word, your paths drip with fatness, could, could mean one of two things. Uh, it could mean that even these paths are growing. There, there's such an abundance here. And God is so tender and so careful and so... Uh, uh, um, good with these plants, that even the paths that are packed down by the wagon ruts, it's even growing there. It could mean that. It could also mean that the harvest is so plentiful that the wagons that they're using to bring the harvest in are overflowing, so that even the paths, the wagons can't even contain the harvest. And so it's overflowing the wagons and falling down into the paths. And so as the farmer takes his wagon of wheat or his wagon of barley to the barn, he looks back and what does he see? That even the path where he planted nothing, where he expected nothing to grow, even that path has, has an abundance of this harvest. All along the path is littered with the grain that's overflowing from his wagons. Your paths drip with fatness or with produce or with, with what, what the gland has, has produced. In verse 12, the pastures of the wilderness drip. Now, again, you have to see the picture here. Don't think a lush green pasture here, right? The pastures of the wilderness are dry, right? Desolate. Yes, it might be a pasture, but the sheep have to look hard and long for grass in a pasture in the wilderness. That's not the place where you typically would want to go. Now, sometimes they had to go. They had no choice. But the pastures of the wilderness, that's a brown, dreary, desolate place. But look what it says in verse 12. The pastures of the wilderness drip. Again, this word drip means overflows. It's, it's, it's just dripping with produce. The grain is bursting up. And even these desolate pastures, because of God's care for each plant, where the farmer didn't even plant anything, but even these pastures are just overflowing. The hills, again, not a place where you would expect there to be lush uh, vegetation, the hills gird themselves, right? It's, the hills are, I mean, when you got dressed this morning, right, you, you put on your clothes, you buckled your belt, you put on, right, all your clothes. Now, now the hills are doing that. They're clothing themselves with, with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks. So the pastures in the hills are, are bursting with grass and with flowers and, 
And, and that's probably what's behind that word rejoicing there. The hills gird themselves with rejoicing. In other words, there's, there's flowers and, and color and beauty there. But now in, in verse 13, the, the result of the vegetation then is here come the flocks. The meadows are clothed with flocks. And almost certainly a reference to sheep here. There's so many sheep. It looks like, it looks like somebody's put a blanket on the meadows. There's so many sheep. And the, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. So this is the result of what God does. God brings water. He brings that water to each plant. He raises, he lifts that plant up to maturity. And he gives that plant an abundance of produce, of grain. And the result is that even the places that you don't expect to grow, the wagon tracks, the desolate pastures in the wilderness, the hills even, are overflowing with grain. The valleys are shouting for joy and singing. Do you see the picture there, my friends? Well, what can we do with this on Thanksgiving Day? Well, the first question, my friends, is, is when I thought about what to preach on for Thanksgiving Day, I thought, you know, we've had a good year. We've had a good year. Yes, there's, there's problems and troubles in, in the economy and, and things like that, but by and large, all of us have had a fairly prosperous year and have great reason to give thanks. We don't have to celebrate Thanksgiving Day in the middle of a depression or in the middle of, of you know, mass unemployment or in the middle of a pandemic, right? We have had a good year. God has blessed us. And that's what led me really to consider Psalm 65. Now, I know there are uh, always uh, cases in the congregation of people who've had setbacks in health or in business, uh, in relationships. I know that. But by and large, right, we can look back on a good and prosperous year. And so the question then for you this morning, my friends, is do you have eyes to see it? Because that's really the problem, isn't it, with us? Is so often we have Psalm 65 taking place before us. The hills are bursting with joy. The fields are full of wheat, full of grain. Right? There's an overflowing of prosperity. I mean, we don't even have to step out the door to know that this church has been greatly blessed by God, right? Because we step onto a brand new parking lot and so many other things. And so the question is, in all of our luxury, do we have eyes to see it? Because that's quickly what happens, isn't it? We grow so accustomed to these things. We grow so used to these things that we just rather expect that that's the way it's going to be and that that's the way it'll be next year and the year after that. But you know, my friends, next year I may have a very different sermon to bring. So we, don't, we, we, we aren't entitled to these things. We don't have a right to them. They are a free gift of God's mercy. And we have to have the eyes to see it. And to go back to what I began with, what a happier people we would be if we did see it. What a stronger witness we would have in our own spheres of influence if we were these grateful kind of people who exuded happiness and joy. What kind of life, what kind of witness would we have in our community if we, like the hills, shouted for joy? Yes, they even sing. What a, what a blessing that would be. But what can we say, my friends, to those who are, are disappointed today, who wake up on Thanksgiving Day to trials, to pain in their body, to setbacks in their business. Maybe, my friends, there's a person here 
who had disappointments in the past week that, that make it difficult to wake up on a Thanksgiving day and to think about being grateful. Because, again, the memory of whatever it was is strong in your mind. Well, I think, my friends, of the water that God brings in our life. And I think of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. And he points to the well there, right? This water, the water that's in that well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Now, my friends, even the disappointments that we received in the past year can still be God's water. When God comes to visit, he brings water. Now, in the psalm that we saw, we saw a picture of overflowing goodness and joy. But also the painful trials and the setbacks we experience can also be water. How? How can even those painful things, those disappointments we have still be water? Because, my friends, even those things are a well of water. Say it with me, my friends, in your own mind. Springing up unto everlasting life. And every trial, every painful thing we pass through in our life, every ache, every pain in your body, it points us, my friends, it springs up within us a hope of eternal life. Now, matter, now, no matter how dark and low your life may come, my friends, it can never come to a point where it erases that hope. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You may be bankrupt in your business. Your health may be failing. Your relationships may be deteriorating. And all the other things that could happen that I can't list this morning. But my friends, we stand on a rock that can never be shaken. That's, of course, if we're a believer. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, a believer in Christ can never be shaken off that rock. Corey Tenboom and her friend could give thanks for lice. But my friends, even when that time came and they had to give their lives, and they had to, uh, well, Corey Tenboom survived the war, but so many died. And also in our day, also in our own experience, we will die too. But even death cannot separate us from that hope. And so, my friends, I ask you to, to, to look this morning at that hope, to see all the other blessings, yes, but finally to end in the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have because of his resurrection. Now, that water, my friends, that God brought you this morning in this sermon is a well of water. It keeps making more water. It springs up. It springs up. And one day it will lead to everlasting life. My friends, may we rest in that hope this morning. And may we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I wish that for you and for your families, for your children. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Shall we pray? Lord, what a great privilege it is this morning to stand here in this pulpit 
and to speak of that glorious hope that you give to all the children of God. So that we can stand here and say, He must increase and I must decrease. Because this water, O Lord, that you bring is a well of water and it springs up in our souls unto everlasting life. It leads us to drink and to drink again and to look with hope and with expectation to eternal life. Lord, we, we sang from the, from the hymn, I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground their blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Lord, may we experience something of the joy of this hope in our souls this day, to the glory of your name. Amen. I will sing two songs in closing. We'll start with singing from 150 with the prayer that God would make our life a life of praise and gratitude, such as we sing in this song, 150C. So we'll sing the three verses of 150C. And then without further announcement, we'll move directly into the blue hymnal, number 51, now unto Jehovah, ye sons of the mighty. So first, 150C, then We'll sing from the blue hymnal number 51, then we'll have the benediction, and then we'll sing our doxology. So first, number 150C in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.